This morning, I'd like to talk about when the miraculous chooses you. How many of you, you'd like the miraculous to choose you? Lift up your hand, even when you're in your room right now, you want your, the miraculous to choose you. You know what? When we're in a pandemic, there's so many, many things that chooses us. You know, mental stress, financial constraints, family strained relationships, you know, job, uh, you know, difficulties, all kinds of things come into our lives. And we are like turning left, right, center, everywhere, there are challenges, there are mountains. But this morning, I want to say prophetically to each and every one of you right now, wherever you are listening, God wants to change your mountains to miracles. Somebody say amen. God wants you to really begin to look beyond your mountains to see that in this time, He's going to cause miracles to come into your life. You need to learn to expect it. You need to be living an expectant life. So, Father, I pray for each and every one right now, wherever they are, whether they're listening in the comfort of their room, whether in a cafe somewhere, in a park somewhere, whether they're here right now in this auditorium, I just want God to ask you that you will make yourself so real, so manifestly present in the heart of each and every one, that, Lord, we will turn outwards beyond all that we are facing to look at you again today so that our mountains of God will be nothing in your sight. Because this morning, I speak right now that the miraculous will choose you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is a miracle? In the 21st century today, people don't believe in miracles. And sometimes when you talk to your friends out there, they're very skeptical. They mock uh, about miracles. But a miracle is an extraordinary event with a positive outcome that is not explicable by natural laws or you know, scientific laws. And we often attribute it to God. And that's why we call it miracles. It is, if you like, a divine paradox. Now, what is a paradox? A paradox is when you have two conflicting truths coexisting in a situation. When these truths actually supposedly are supposed to cancel each other out and you have them coexisting in a situation, you have a paradox. If you have a miracle taking place and you have natural laws that say that miracles can't take place, but a miracle has happened, you have a paradox. If you look at the screen, you'll see that when you have a, a red and a blue button, the red button says the blue button is true, but the blue button then falsifies the red button by saying that the red button is false. Well, you know, um, you can't have these two statements on the same buttons, on the two different buttons, and they coexist because Either one is true or neither is true. But you cannot have both these buttons being true. That is a paradox. Now, just in case you think paradoxes are only things that happen in, you know, religious life, Christian life, that's why people with scientific minds often tell us, you know what, I don't believe in all this because, you know, the laws of science cannot be broken. I want to tell you that science itself is full of paradox. So I just want to take you for a quick short journey before I launch into miracles this morning. You know, science is full of paradox. For example, space-time is paradox. We experience space-time as three dimensions with a linear flow of time. But no, it's not like that at all. Space-time has been proven to be an interwoven fabric of four dimensions. It's an interwoven fabric. Who showed it? Einstein showed it uh, in, the, in the, the law of relativity that it is actually a fabric of four dimensions. It's not like three dimensions with a linear flow of time. Light is a paradox. 
It's, it sometimes behaves as a particle, sometimes it behaves as a wave. Which is it? Is it a wave or a particle? It can be either. It can be either. At any one time, it can be a wave particle. How can? It's a paradox. It's a paradox. You know, even quantum mechanics, the basic physics that undergirds everything that we understand about ourselves and the universe, both microscopically and macroscopically, quantum mechanics, it's a paradox. It's girded, undergirded by the uncertainty principle. And the uncertainty principle tells us at subatomic level, nothing is certain. If you can determine the position of a subatomic particle, you can't determine its velocity or its momentum. If you can determine its momentum, you can't determine its position. In other words, you're never certain where a subatomic particle is. Matter is a paradox. You know, everything you see around you here, everything, including, you know, you know, the air that you feel around you, even the vacuum on planet Earth, even all the galaxies and stars out in the universe, everything that you can see, feel, measure, constitutes only 4% of all the matter that's only in the universe. The bulk of the matter in the universe that controls us, you cannot see. 70% of it is, 75% of it is made out of dark energy. And 21% is made out of dark matter. Dark energy is the force and the matter that causes the universe to fly apart. Right now, the whole universe is expanding, and not only is it expanding, it's accelerating, it's expanding. What's the cause? Dark energy. What is it? Nobody knows. What about dark matter? Dark and matter is the extra matter which we can't see, but we know it's out there. And it's causing the galaxies to revolve at a speed that was far greater than if there wasn't dark matter. So, so what is it? Even in the realm of science, dark energy and dark matter controls the universe, not the seen matter that we see. In other words, in science, the unseen controls the seen. Come, somebody say amen. In science, the unseen controls the seen. And that's a spiritual truth amongst us. We know that in the spiritual realm, the realm of the miracles, the unseen controls the seen. Somebody say amen. Just in case you think these things are just figments of imagination. The people who discovered these things won Nobel Prizes. Einstein won the Nobel Prize for the photoelectric effect of light. Werner Heisenberg won the uh, Nobel Prize for the uncertainty principle. And in the year 2011, three men won the Nobel Prize for physics in the discovery of dark energy. That's Adam Rice and Saul Perlmutter of the United States and Brian Smith of Australia. There is paradox in science, the very basic science that undergirds our existence and everything that we know in the universe now, now, all the chemical reactions, all the basic physics reactions, there's uncertainty and there's paradox. Now you're ready for what I'm about to say. The Bible is full of paradoxes. God is both, God is both Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's three in one. How can? It's a paradox. Jesus is both God and man. That's a paradox. The Bible is written by man, but inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's a paradox. We have free will, and yet God controls everything. How can it be? It's a paradox. So when we say things like that, it's a paradox. The Bible has paradoxes. People say, there you are. It's against, it contravenes scientific laws and natural laws. You see, all this is nonsense. You can tell them science is full of paradoxes. You know, I don't know when you first encountered your first miracle. Some of you, you've been Christians for many years and you've never encountered a miracle. 
But I want to tell you, the miracles is not found in the things that are big and spectacular sometimes. You know, you are suddenly, it's, it's of earth-shaking consequence and everybody can see it. But sometimes it's found in the small things. And miracles have been happening to many of our lives. And we don't know it. We're always looking for the big things. But I want to tell you, if you posture yourself right, God will give you miracles that are small and also miracles that are big, that will shatter and you know, that will shatter your imagination, that will touch your lives in way and lives of people around you that you've never ever imagined. Many years ago, when and that's many many years ago now, um, you know, in the early days after I, I became a Christian, when I was a student over uh, over in the UK, I went uh, on a mission trip to Italy with Operation Mobilization. We were tracting in the streets of Italy for about six months, six weeks, just sharing the gospel. And at the end of the six weeks, we had to make our journey back to Belgium and eventually I had to catch a ferry back to the UK. I was the only kind of Asian together with about 20 other European brothers and sisters. We were camping on campsites, living by faith. And uh, we had an old bread van to take us from place to place in northern Italy to share the gospel. At the end of the six weeks, we had to actually um, go get back to Belgium and that night, we set off on the journey over the Dolomites. That's the mountain separating Austria from northern Italy. And up on the mountains, the brakes of that brake van failed. How do I know? I was sitting in the front with the driver. And he was, he was stepping and stomping on the brake pedal, and there was nothing. It was just hitting the floorboards. And he was in great panic, and he, he pulled the handbrake up. He uh, changed clutch down, eventually brought the vehicle to the side of the road by the motorway. It was one o'clock in the morning, and the winds were howling. And I, I got out of the, um, the bread van together with the, the driver, and we lifted up the hood, we looked in with a torch on the engine, and there in the fluid compartment, the brake fluid compartment was leaking. And the brake fluid compartment was virtually empty. And that's why the brakes had failed. And I said, we need a mechanic. But we're gonna get a mechanic at one o'clock in the morning up in the mountains. And uh, the, uh, the tall Swedish leader, he said, no, we need to pray. I said, we need a mechanic. We don't need to pray, mechanic. He said, no, we need to pray. And being obedient, we prayed. We prayed about an hour, about an hour when the winds are howling outside. And after the one hour, he said, let's try the brakes. And I thought, what a stupid thing to say. You just prayed. And I'm telling this story because I saw it with my own eyes. I do not have any explanation for it up to today, but I saw it. And now uh, the driver got back into the seat and he stepped on the brake pedal. And now instead of it flat hitting the floorboards, it met resistance. And he was so excited. He said, something's happened. The brakes are now, the Chinese would say, the brakes now eat, lah, you know. <laughs> so so we, we, we jumped out of, of the vehicle, we lifted out the, um, the hood and we looked down. And there the leaking had stopped and some dark fluid was in the brake compartment. Now who believes here that God can create brake fluid? You believe that? You in the room, you're watching this, you believe that? There are many hands out here. You believe God can create brake fluid, huh? That must be what happened. Come on, let's give the Lord a big hand. And we got into the vehicle and we got back to Belgium. I'm telling the story because I saw it firsthand. I have no explanation. And from that moment, you know, my own sense of like, 
you know, cynicism turned to awe. I was in awe. It reminds me of a story of an Anglican clergyman who was a very smart guy. You know, he was educated at a top university in the UK, but he, he's a believer, but he had never seen miracles in his life. So he was, he's very, very, you know, skeptical about some of these miracles of healing. And he went eventually to a Catherine Kuhlman meeting. I don't know if you heard of Catherine Kuhlman, the great healing evangelist in the 1960s, 70s in the United States. He went there just to, to watch this, what he called American showmanship, because he thought it was all set up. He went into this huge LA uh, Coliseum uh, auditorium and thousands of people there. He's got himself a front seat. And somewhere in that meeting, Catherine Kuhlman came up and said, somebody here, you've been healed of your, your leg. You had a bad limb, broken leg before. You couldn't walk. And will you come up, please? And a man just two seats away from him got up, big-sized man, went up to the platform. And Catherine Kuhlman said, you couldn't walk before? He said, no, I couldn't walk. Saying said, can you walk now? He, he walked. And then, can you run? He started running up and down the stage. Everybody clapped. There was a rapturous applause. The people were getting so excited. And this Anglican clergyman, he was there sitting with his arms folded, very cynical. And he said to the guys next to him, he said, you know, you don't believe all this, do you? That man there obviously was a plant. He was planted. So at the right moment, he would come up, you know, and demonstrate all these things. And there would be faith level rising and people would give more money. Cynicism. He said, you don't believe all this, do you? He turned to the man next to him. And he saw that the old man next to him had tears running down his eyes. And the old man said, no, that man who got up, he's my son. He couldn't walk before. And suddenly, his cynicism turned to conviction. Today, I want to speak about the miraculous choosing you. Can somebody say an amen? Once again, how many of you, you want the miraculous to choose you during this time? Can I see your hands? Lift it up right now. You may be going through a pandemic and challenges in your life. You may be at the lowest point of your life. But I'm saying to you this morning, the miraculous will choose you if you have the right posture. Now open yourself to the Lord. I want to take you back to the first miracle. The, the miracle at the wedding of Cana in Galilee. And draw from you the principles by which the, miracle, the miraculous will choose us. So if you're ready, I want to read the scripture from John chapter 2 verses uh, 1 to 12. And there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Jesus said to her, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six jars of stone, each containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, fill the jars with water. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, he called the bridegroom and said, every man starts with a good wine and then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. This was the first of the miracles that Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And his disciples believed in him. Somebody say believed. And after this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. First question I'd like to ask, whose wedding feast was it? Well, it doesn't tell us, but you can surmise from there. It was the wedding feast of one of Mary's 
relatives. How do we know? Because when they ran out of wine, they went to Mary first. Now, you know what it means to run out of wine in a Middle Eastern wedding? It's like, it's like running out of food in a Chinese wedding. You run out of food in a Chinese wedding, everybody will be talking about this shame for the next 20 years. True or not? It is the ultimate humiliation if you run out of food at a wedding. Now you run out of wine, it's the ultimate humiliation. It's crisis. Now when you have a crisis like that, which is a humiliating crisis, do you go and tell your guests first? Do you? You say, oh, sorry, uh, no food. Uh. You, 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 you go and tell a relative first. A relative who has authority. So it has to be one of Mary's relatives. And she probably was the aunt. Probably. I'm just surmising. And probably it was the wedding of a nephew or the niece. And you know, they all looked at her because she was, she was the big aunt, she had authority. So the servants went to her first. We have no wine. They went to Mary. And secondly, why we know it's a relative's wedding is because in that wedding, we are told in the story that Jesus went and his brothers also went. Now, do you take your brothers and sisters to a friend's wedding or not? Do you? The only time you take your brothers and sisters go with you, the whole family goes to the wedding, the whole Jin gang goes to the wedding is when? Relatives wedding. Everybody goes. So we know it was probably a relative's wedding. Now, in this miracle at the wedding in Cater of Galilee, I'll give you four principles by which the miraculous will choose you. And they're generic principles, and they're principles that apply to you right now, whatever state you are in. You know, if you look to your problems and you look to your mountains, your mountains will only stare back at you. But if you look to God, a miracle can break through over and above the mountains and flatten those mountains. Somebody say amen. I'll give you these four principles. And these four principles are based on this. You must look with your heart. It's based on this basic premise. You must look with your heart. By that, I mean your spirit. Don't look with your mind. Don't look with your intellect. Don't look with your rational, logical mind. Look with your heart. Everybody say, look with your heart. Look with your heart. Okay? Not with your eyes. The heart understands. The heart never lies. Believe what it feels. Trust what it shows. Look with your heart. Your heart always knows. I know this is a, a script from uh, one of these playwriters called Andrew Lloyd Webber. It's, I just borrow it, okay? I'm not asking you to look with your emotions, your emotional heart. I'm asking you to look with your spirit man as opposed to your mind. Somebody say an amen? Because your emotional man is unreliable. But your heart as represented by an emotional man is unreliable because the heart is desperately corrupt and wicked. Who can understand it? We all know that. You can't trust our emotions. But look with your spirit man. Everybody lift up your hand right now. Lift up your hand right now. Put it over your spirit man, somewhere between your heart and your stomach, somewhere there. Okay. Everybody say, look with my heart. Look with my heart. Okay, here are the four principles by looking with your heart. Firstly, when you meet your mountain, you meet your challenge, look to Jesus first. Look to Jesus first. Don't look just, you know. I mean, some people, they get a bad diagnosis. They come out of a doctor's office. You know what? They look to the next specialist first. Somebody come out in a bad situation because the cash flow is down and there are challenges in their business. They look for the next bank manager first. Somebody are men facing mental stress in mental situation. They look to tablets at the next psychologist or psychiatrist first. Hey, listen, there's nothing wrong looking at all these things, but we got our priorities wrong. Look to Jesus first. See, so it's the first thing. Look with your heart, your spirit. 
Look to Jesus first and tell him your problems. Just look. And that's what Mary did when the servants came to Mary. This is Mary's journey of faith. Absolute faith in Jesus. She said to him, we have, they have no wine. I already tell you what a kind of crisis it is. Okay? They have no wine. We have no wine. And you know, when, when you have a situation like that, all you have to do is go and tell Jesus your problem first. What you're facing right now. Is it a burnout? Is it a mental challenge? Is it a stress? And sometimes you know, God, you know what? I need this. I need this. I need, I need the other. I need... Look to Jesus first. Tell him your problems. It's as simple as that. And she, she came to Jesus and said, they have no wine. They have just no wine. And secondly, here's the second key. Look beyond God's apparent non-response. What did Jesus do when Mary came and said, they have no wine? Jesus said these words. He said, what does that do with me, woman? My hour has not yet come. What? You don't understand. We're in a crisis. We have no wine. There's an ultimate humiliation in the whole village. And you say, what has to, this to do with me, woman? My time has not yet come. <laughs> what is that? <laughs> you know, I, I don't understand. You know, as the, sometimes Hokkien say, well, I'll milk you. You know, I don't, understand. I don't know what's going on. Look on me. What's it up? God's non-response. See, sometimes when you tell Jesus your problems with your heart, not with your mind, just with heart, Lord, this is my problem. You get a non-response. And the non-response I want to tell you is not a no, it's not a yes, it's just a non. Non-response is not no. Non-response is not yes, it's just a non. Now, for example, I'll give you an example of what non-response is. You come over to a doctor's office and a consult and you have a bad diagnosis and you're like, oh God, you know, God, Jesus, this, this is mine. Instead of thinking about the next specialist you need to see, you, you cry out to God, let's say. And in the middle of it, some kids are playing on the streets. You happen to walk to your car there and the, the ball hits you and then the, kid, the, the ball sort of, you know, lodges up in the tree and the kids say, hey, miss, can you get that ball for us? And you're like, oh, You've got to climb up that tree and just get the ball for them. Well, God, don't you see my problem? God didn't say yes. God didn't say no. Just have to get the ball first. It's a non-response. See, many of us stop at the non-response. We don't go beyond. It's like you have a bad back and asking God to heal your bad back. You squeeze yourself into your car, can hardly get in. It's so painful. And then you put in your key for the ignition and you turn the ignition and you have a flat battery. God, don't you hear me? I'm going in a bad shape. Now I've got a flat battery. What am I going to do? Got to look for help again, setting me back. It's not a no. It's not a yes. It's not a non. It's just a non-response. You have to look beyond God's non-response. See, Mary was not faced because she looked beyond Jesus' non-response because she immediately turned to the servant and said, whatever he says, do it. It doesn't matter what. What Jesus was trying to say to her was, you know, you know they have no wine. Uh, and, and Jesus was saying, you know, what has it to do with me, woman? My hour has not yet come. Meaning that, you know what? One day, 
one day my blood will be shed on the cross and it will be represented by the wine and that will be my hour. That's a prophetic statement he's making, but how is Mary going to understand this? It's far too deep for her, far too deep for her as far as she's concerned. It's a non-response. But never mind, whatever you want. He told the servants, whatever Jesus wants, just do it. By the way, this is an excellent phrase some people have used, uh, you know, as a non-response because, uh, you know, some of you young people, your parents may ask you to actually throw the trash out. I don't quote Jesus on this. You don't tell your mom who asked you to throw your trash out, the trash out. What has it got to do with me, woman? My hour has not yet come, you know. Don't ever do that, okay? Then your mom will say, cheeky, where did you get that? Jesus said it. So look beyond God's non-response. And you know, let me tell you a story of a woman called Jean Crider. Jean Crider, she, she, she gave birth to a baby with club feet. And with club feet, you know, she had, uh, when, when the baby was born, the doctor told her, your, your child will never walk normally. He will not play basketball, he will not run. And you know, he, he would just walk with this very awkward gait, struggling. And Jean Crider was so shocked by this, she was so depressed, she wanted to throw herself under a bus with a child. But because she had another child, she decided just to, to you know, to, to stop herself from committing suicide. And then somebody told her about Catherine Kuhlman meeting. So she went to the Catherine Kuhlman meeting because she said, uh, you know, healings were taking place. So she saw healings taking place on the platform. She wasn't a believer. And every time she, she brought the child to the meeting in this huge auditorium, every time somebody walked or somebody got healed, she looked at the child's legs, you know, un unwrap the shawl and look at the child's legs, but nothing happened. But something struck in her heart. So when she left the meeting that night, when, even though nothing happened, she looked beyond God's response. She listened to Catherine Kuhlman on the radio program. You must understand, those were the 70s, in the 70s. She was listening to Catherine Kuhlman. And then eventually, she gave her heart to Jesus as a result of the radio program. And she began to believe and pray for the child. But nothing was happening. And one day, you know, every day she would pray for the child to be healed. Non-response, non-response on her. Days, weeks, months, year, two years. Non-response. And then one day her husband came back. Her husband wasn't a believer and saw her doing that, unwrapping the shawl, looking and praying. And her husband said to her, you know what, you should stop doing that. If you really believe in your God and your God will heal you, you just, you just believe, you trust God. And don't look at the, at the feet anymore. And with that, the husband really was paraphrasing Mark 11 verse 24 for her. Therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask when you pray, believe that you receive them and you will have them. And so from that moment onward, she stopped looking at the lakes after prayer. And she continued for months after months in the non-response. And then, you know, one day she heard Catherine Kuhlman say on the radio, the, your healer is not just a doctrine or a dogma or a church. Your healer is no other than the son of the living God. And as she heard that word, something came into her spirit and she turned to a child who was in a corner somewhere and she stretched out her arms to the child just as she had done hundreds of times before. And she said, come to mommy. And the child got up, age two, and walked. Completely healed. Completely healed. And that child is now in his 70s, 60s, 70s now. And that child today is completely healed, completely as an old man, up to now. So, Look beyond God's non-response, okay? Some of you may be asking, God, I've been asking for three months already. What? Look beyond his non-response. If you look with your mind, you will give up. Look with your heart, nobody eyes. The spirit, the heart understands 
the heart never lies. Remember that, okay? Here's the third thing, the third key. Okay, look to do whatever he tells you. Mary said to the, the servants, whatever he tells you, do it. And Jesus said to them, okay, go and fill the pots up with water. Now, you must understand the pots actually contain about 30 gallons apiece. Now, in those days, you don't have running water. And we went to, you know, Capernaum today. You know that you probably have to go down. You know, in Cana today, you have to go down, you know, uh, and, and, you know, the well somewhere at the bottom of the hill and take water. So they have to go down, bottom of the hill, to take lots of water. Eventually carry out small vases of water and fill up the pots, fill up. Why? Because the water will be empty. The pots will be empty. Why? Because most people have washed themselves to get into the wedding feast already. So it's a very difficult situation. There is work to be done. Why are you doing this work? Because he asked you to do it. But you know, what's it got to do with my healing? I want my healing. No, he's just asked you to do it. But God, what about my mentals? He's just asked you to do it. Just go and serve in out you know, the cook, and go and serve in, go and serve the poor. Just, but what about? He just asked you to do it. So they, they poured all that water in. They poured all that water in. I remember many years ago, there was a member of our church who, um, who slipped in the last trimester of her pregnancy, cracked her backbone, and was in severe pain. And she couldn't walk. And when she delivered the baby, she had to nurse the baby lying in bed or on the sofa. And, uh, you know, because she could, she could hardly stand. Because every time she stand and walk, it was such a severe pain. She didn't come to church for the first three months after even delivery. And um, we visited her and prayed for her. Nothing happened. And then one day, we held an evening healing service. We rarely did this, but it was a season when we said, we're going to hold healing services in the evening. And we just did it for about five or six successive weeks. She heard about it. And something in the spirit said, go to the healing service. So she told her husband, drop me off at the hotel. You know, Skyline is actually in a, a five-star hotel, and uh, we're on the third floor. And, uh, you know, she said, drop, and she, drop me off. So she, she was dropped off the husband at a giant lobby. She walked through the lobby. She didn't even use the lift because the lift was even further away. So she struggled up the spiral staircase, you know, hand over hand, just pulling herself up in severe pain. I was preaching. She came late for the service and I was preaching. And I saw her walk through the door and thought to myself, what on earth is she doing here? And she went and sat at the back and when the altar call was made for people to, to be healed, she struggled out to the front. And one of my pastors prayed for her and she fell under the power of the Spirit. You must understand those days our carpets were quite thin, okay? She fell and I, I jumped at my pastor and said, get her up because she'll probably crack the hormones, you know, it will be, it will, the fracture will be worse. And, I, and before we could get to her, she sat up dusted herself off the floor. And then she said, my pain's gone. And we said, really? She said, yeah. She started to do, you know, touching her toes. And she started walking around the auditorium and she started then running. So people just burst out into rapturous applause. They were just, oh God, we're just so pumped up. God, you're here. So I said to her, how come you, you came? Your husband who told you you're mad. Don't ever come because you can hardly walk. She said, I had a voice. When you announced, Pastor, that there was going to be healing service uh, you know, the following week, I, I heard a voice telling me, you must go. So I just went. I came. It cost me so much to pull myself up that banister. But it's completely healed now. Here's the third key. With your heart, okay? Not with your mind because your mind won't obey this. Whatever it tells you, do it. And then there's a the fourth key. Then you step into your miracle. And this is what happened. 
It was quite quiet. And Jesus said to those servants, she said, now take, take some of this wine and then serve it to the master of the, of the feast and to the whole of the wedding feast. That's what he said. And you know what? They, they scooped it in some of the smaller uh, vases or serving jars and, or mugs or jugs and they, they went in. And then, of course, they have to serve it to the master of the feast first. Now, if you read the scriptures, it tells us somewhere between scooping out the water from the pot, putting it into the flask, and taking it to the master of the feast, somewhere in that transition, the water became wine. We don't know when, we don't know how, we don't know at which point, but somewhere it became wine. And as they poured it into the cup of the master of the feast, you know, they were running out of wine, this master of the feast, so he wants to taste the wine first, he tasted it, and it, wow, he suddenly woke up. You know, he was already quite full of wine, but this wine, his, he woke up because it's like, he never tasted wine that good before. He was like smelling it and just swirling it around and, you know, tasting it. And he says, you know what? This reminds me of that famous vintage. It's, um, it's Chateau Lafitte. 30 BC, that is, not 80. Where did you get this? Or oh, uh, someone said, oh, there's a guy outside, you know, he just, uh, oh, don't worry about it, just bring the wine in. Now, the rest of the feast, you know what? They didn't know what was happening. They just drank the wine. You jump step in, and it happens to your life. You may be undergoing mental stress, nobody may know. But you step in. Now, people say to me, if there are so many miracles happening, and so spectacular, and you Christians talk about miracles, why doesn't the New Straits Times report it? Why doesn't the Star report it? You believe everything in the Star and New Straits Times, man? Yeah, yeah. The only truth in the Malaysian newspaper sometimes is the back page. You know? Liverpool 2, Manchester City nil. Yeah, that's truth, okay. I say Liverpool because I know your pastor Kevin is, you know, is Liverpool supporter. So, why is it in that newspaper? It's because like this, it's sometimes very quiet. Oh. And I'll show that to you. The three marks of miracles when they happen, you can take it from Venning and Canaan of Galilee, three marks. Firstly, they are spectacular, they can be spectacular, but they're very silent. They're very silent. How do I know? Well, if you pour water, water is what? H2O, and it becomes wine. Wine is what? It's alcohol. C2H5OH. Hey, guys, you remember your chemistry? Put up your hand, okay? Now, you must remember, H2O to be converted into C2H5OH. You need a carbon atom. You need to create carbon out of hydrogen and oxygen. How do you create carbon out of hydrogen? You can't create it on planet Earth. You know how to create carbon out of hydrogen? You have to go to the middle of the sun. At 20,000 degrees of thermonuclear fusion, at the core of the sun, Hydrogen becomes helium, helium fuses to become carbon. It's spectacular! But it's silent. Somewhere as they're taking the water, changes. That's why miracles don't get reported in New Straits Times. Or the star. Because it's silent. Secondly, miracles when they happen, they happen, they happen publicly but they are personal. How do you know it's personal? 
Because the only people who believed in the Cana of Miracle were the disciples. You know that? The disciples only. You read the passage, the disciples believed in him. What about the master of the feast? No. What about the servants? No. What about the, um, what about the whole, the bridegroom and the, the bride and all the wedding guests? No. Nobody believed. Nobody's lives have changed. Only the disciples. You can read it. How do I know that is the truth? Because when you read John chapter 4, two chapters later, Jesus came back to Cana again for the second time. If everybody had believed in him, you would expect a rapturous welcome. The, the Messiah, the miracle workers, come back to Cana. You know when he came back to Cana the second time? Nobody met him. Nobody greeted him, you know, you read it. And the only healing he did in Canaan was long distance for a nobleman's servant who was in Capernaum. Not even in Canaan did he do another miracle. It's spectacular, it's silent, it's public, it's personal. You look at a man called Bartimaeus who was healed outside Jericho and Jesus healed him. It was public. Everybody was shoving and pushing, huge crowds following Jesus and he healed Bartimaeus there. And Bartimaeus was saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy upon me. And Jesus said, what do you want? My sight, Rabbi, my sight. According to your faith, be healed. Bang, was healed. And everybody says, bravo, very good. Now let's move on, okay? For everybody, they're moving on into the city of Jericho where they encountered Zacchaeus and so on. But for Bartimaeus, it was everything. He went from somebody who was a beggar with no hope, no future for his life, consigned to the pits for the rest of his life, to somebody now he could see again, who had hope. All his suffering and everything he had gone through now just disappeared in an instance. It was public. As far as the public was concerned, that was a good show, Jesus. Let's move on. But for Bartimaeus, it's everything. So when God does a miracle for you today, somehow when you want to share it with other people, uh, you know, it, it doesn't seem to carry the, the excitement that you, you feel when the incredible miracle is. People say, oh, it's good. Uh. Cool, uh, good, good, good. Good lah. Yeah, okay lah. You know, they want to change the subject and talk something else. Why? Because the miracles happen. Even in the public sphere, they're very personal. And the final thing about miracles is that when God does a miracle for you, it is not just abiding. Not only does it last, but it is abundant. It is truly abundant. Let me tell you how abundant this miracle was. Jesus converted water into wine. We are told... 30 gallons jars, okay? Six of them, that's 180 gallons of wine. Somebody say amen. 180 gallons of wine. Those of you who love wine. Oh, 180 gallons of wine. How much is that? It's 680 liters of wine. How much is that? It's 900 bottles of wine. How much is that? If each one of you were to drink, you know, the normal amount, you don't fill up a whole wine glass, you find, you know, like a third of a wine glass, it's three glass, four glasses. It's four glasses. Each one can drink. And each one drink four glasses, it serves 5,600 guests at a wedding feast. Somebody say, wow. Wow. Wow, you had the kind of wine, I tell you, everybody's happy. That's enough a feast for a royal wedding. How do I know? Because in 1947, when Queen Elizabeth married Prince Philip, at the royal wedding, they only had 2,500 guests. The amount of wine Jesus converted for that village wedding was enough for 5,600 guests. 
It is abundant and abiding. So when God does a miracle, sometimes it's very hard to tell somebody else, you know. Because, you know, when you're in the midst of your depression and you're about to jump off or something and God does something, oh, and it changes your life and you try to tell somebody about it, huh? it's not quite the 100% one. Huh? It's like people like, appreciate only 30% of it because the remaining 70% is your story. It's very hard even to sell it to a newspaper. It's very hard. It's spectacular. It's silent. It's public. It's personal. It's abundant. You know what God has done. It's abiding. It just lasts in you. Everybody, they, they hear it, they forget it after tomorrow or day after tomorrow. And that's the same story. Today, I want to say this to you. Look beyond. God is gathering us back. This is the season of the miraculous. Somebody say amen to that. How many of you believe that? Lift up your hand one more time. Lift up your hand with me one more time. How many of you want that? Lift up your hand with me one more time in your life. I don't know what you need right now, whether you're in the living room right now watching this. If you want the miraculous, I want you to take that hand and put it upon your heart right now. And just say, Jesus, I'm looking to you. Just say, Jesus, I'm looking to you. I'm looking to you right now. I'll just tell you the story of uh, our own family. You know, at age of four, my daughter, Sarah, the youngest daughter, she was found accidentally strangulated on a clothesline. She was playing at the back of a violin teacher's house. She was standing on the stool. There was a, a, a rope with a noose in it. She would put her head in and she, and, a, and, and you know, accidentally, she kicked the stool or she slipped from the stool and she strangled. She was four years old. And when we discovered her, she was dead. She was brought down without pulse, without respirations, pupils fixed and dilated in the hot afternoon sun. She was dead, four years old. But you know, this is what we did. Look to Jesus. I remember rushing to the site and the Lord spoke to me. And the Lord said, I want you to curse the spirit of death. Look to Jesus. Look with your heart, not with your eyes. So when I got to the site, I knew everything that needed to be done medically. I knew, but I still look with my heart. I said to Sarah, Sarah, you shall not die, you shall live. In Jesus' name, I cast out the spirit of death. Long before I did CPR. Look with your heart, not with your eyes. Look beyond his non-response. Nothing much happened. You can say, God, why, 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 God? And no reply. Look beyond his non-response. And then do whatever he asked you to do. So that's what I did. And now, you know, Sarah started breathing again. The long short story short, we eventually got her to the ER of the hospital. And eventually, you know, they did a CT scan, everything else, you know, put her on, you know, she started breathing again, put her on oxygen. But I know the damage to her brain had been done. I mean, she might be brain damaged for life. Totally brain damaged for life. And she was in a deep coma. But somehow, as we continued to pray as a church, this was in the first one and a half years since Skyline started, or a year about Skyline since started. We were just a small church. And the church prayed. Just like you today, you can rise up and pray together. And believe God to break through in the miracle. Somebody say amen. And you can, you can pray together. As you pray together, corporate anointing heals you personally. Yes, amen. Heals you personally as well. And so at four o'clock in the morning, that morning, through the night as a church prayed, Sarah woke up completely healed, 
completely healed. She woke up and says, Mommy, and she was completely healed. And people say to her, so how's Sarah today? You know what? That happened 18 years ago when Sarah was four years old. This final photograph is Sarah today. Sarah today is 22 years old. She's just graduated as a medical doctor. And when God does something, it is not just abundant. It is abiding. And I want you to know that. And when God sees you out of your mental stress, it is not just temporary. If you continue to look to Him with your heart, it is abundant and abiding. Can somebody say an amen? How many of you need a miracle from God today, whether you're listening to me in your living room or wherever, in another part of the world, in another city, or whether right now in this auditorium right now? How many of you need a miracle from God? Just lift up your hand right now. Just lift it up. You need a breakthrough from God. Take it and put it into your heart. Okay? Put it in your heart, your spirit man, right now. I'm going to pray for you right now. Just sense, you know, some of you, only you will know what you're going through. But God knows. God knows. Remember, it's not about spectacular. It's silent. Remember, it's not just about, you know, being public, doing this, but it's very personal. Remember, when He does that miracle, it's not just abundant. It is abiding. He will abide. It will abide. So right now, in Jesus' name, where you are, Father, I thank you for this fantastic church, our church with a heart for the poor, for the refugees, for the oppressed, to God, for those who are torn, for the special people. We just thank you because that's your heart. Because your heart, God, goes out to all these, but beyond that, to every one of us here today. You're part of this wonderful church called Collective, and collectively, we are strong in you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will affirm each one here under the sound of my voice that you are greatly, greatly blessed, highly favoured, and you're deeply loved by Jesus right now. So whatever each one you're going through, I pray right now that you will look to Jesus. Everybody say in your heart, I look to Jesus. That's right. And that you will look beyond even God's non-response. Some of you, you have thinking, God, are you here? Are you here? For the last four months, for the last three weeks, for the last few days, are you here, God? Look beyond His non-response. He is here. He is with you. He is walking with you. And as you put your hand to your heart, just say to the Lord, whatever you say, I will do. Just take that journey of faith. Whatever you say. Not rationally, not logically, but just... In my heart, in my spirit, Lord, I would do. If it means even in the midst of all my challenges to go out and serve the poor, I would do it. If it means doing this for my family, I'll do it. Even though I've got things to look after myself, even though I'm going through this hardship, I would, I would do it. I would just do it. Even if it means, Lord, I'm so comfortable watching this at home, but, and God says to me, I want you to be back on the auditorium and the collective to, next week, I will do it. Something simple like that, I will do it. I would do it. And then somewhere along the line, my friends, during this time of the lockdown, God will enable you to step out and to receive your miracle. I speak that miracle to come upon your life right now in the name of Jesus to bring about the restoration, the healing, the breakthrough that you need. Right now in the name of Jesus. 
to lift up every oppression, to lift up every depression, to lift up every fear, every intimidation by the enemy in Jesus' name. So that your mountain now is flattened and your miraculous chooses you today. Hallelujah. I speak that in your life. In the glorious and mighty name of Jesus Because collective church You are a supernatural church You are a church where the miraculous chooses you And in this coming season You will see miracle upon miracle Sure you'll have challenges But you will see the miracle Because you're not looking at the mountains You're looking to Jesus And to do what He tells you to do I pray all this Lord That you will bless your people In Jesus name I pray Hallelujah Amen